What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Masterful how he squeezes all that in. Uh, Scott, thanks and hi, everybody. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the path ahead is highly uncertain and he's concerned about a prolonged recession and a weak recovery. Stocks are sharply lower right now. Is Wall Street starting to fear that we need a new letter or symbol of some kind to explain the new economic reality we are about to face? Plus, the global supply chain in tatters in the wake of COVID-19 and news that at least one major university on the East Coast is hoping and planning to have students on campus in the fall. This, as the nation's largest college system, is doing the opposite. All of that's ahead of us. We start with the markets, though, in the sell-off, which Dom Chu has more on. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, we are hovering right just near the lows of the day so far. As you can see with the Dow, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ all around close to 2% below where they were just at the close yesterday. The Dow Industrials, by the way, about 500 points to the downside. The S&P 500, that 29.50 level, we're a far cry from it right now, 4% below where we have been just in the last couple of days. But watch that level. It seems to be some near-term resistance or slowing momentum in the markets around those levels. The heat map is all red. Consumer staples, real estate discretionary, outperforming Weemwell, industrials, financials, and energy, the real underperformers. Two things to pay attention to. Consumer staples right now, the only S&P sector that's slightly positive on a one-week basis, and technology. It's been the outperformer year-to-date. It is now today drifted just slightly into negative territory. So, Kelly, those sectors key to watch as these markets develop the way they are over the last couple of days. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thanks. Let's turn to Fed Chair Jay Powell taking a more cautious tone today with some pretty alarming stats about the U.S. right now. Steve Leisman is here with those headlines for us. Steve? Kelly, thanks. Yeah, a uh, sobering speech from the Fed chairman. Uh, Pretty downbeat in its assessment of the outlook. You said the outlook is highly uncertain and there are significant downside risks. Uh, He was asked, he he talked about uh, his concerns for the future and talked about the idea that a liquidity problem over time can become a solvency problem. Recovery may take some time to gather momentum, and the passage of time can turn liquidity problems into solvency problems. Additional fiscal support could be costly, but worth it if it helps avoid long-term damage and leaves us with a stronger recovery. This trade-off is one for our elected representatives who wield powers of taxation and spending. On the issue of negative rates, which markets have been anxious to hear about, he said it's not something we're looking at. He noted that there is consensus against negative rates on the Federal Market Committee. On unemployment, he thinks it's going to go up uh, sharply, uh, but may peak in the next month, he said, but come down only slowly and remain elevated over time. Powell said that the Fed would use all of its tools to their fullest extent until the crisis passes. But Kelly, uh, I've been listening to Fed chairs and chairmen for a very long time, and uh, usually they say, here's the problem with the economy, here's the policy, and here's how it's going to end up okay in the end. Powell is not there yet. It's clear that he does not believe the policies are in place yet for him to be able to say we have a positive outlook for the economy, either the health policies, the fiscal policies, and maybe not even the Fed policies in place yet. 
Steve, perhaps the headline that grabbed me the most was when he said that 40 percent of people making forty thousand dollars or less were out of work in March. Am I getting that right? I mean, that was that was just astonishing. It was a stunning uh, uh, statistic uh, said by the chairman, and it's going to be in a uh, survey that the Fed is going to put out tomorrow on uh, household economics. Um, And uh, yeah, it, it just shows how much and we've seen this in other data how much lower-income Americans have been hit hard by this. And, and a funny way that you saw this, and I only mean funny, I just mean odd way that you saw it, was that the average wage ticked mm-hmm. up in the last employment report 4.7%, and that's because so many low-income Americans have dropped out of the workforce and been furloughed or, or unemployed since this crisis began. Yeah, one of the spookiest things to think of how many people that took in order to push the average wage higher. Steve, thanks. I appreciate you bringing us those headlines. And again, maybe one of the reasons yeah. uh, things are weighing on the market. Also, noted hedge fund manager David Tepper just told our Scott Wapner moments ago that he thinks this is the second most overvalued stock market he's ever seen behind only 1999. And this was on top of those comments from the Fed chair, which were pretty downbeat earlier today. The question now for investors is, do they need to be prepared for a long winter as we head into summer? And here to discuss are Yurian Timmer, Director of Global Macro at Fidelity Investments, and Matt Maley, Managing Director and Chief Market Strategist at Miller. Matt, I'll just start with you in terms of what the market's parsing here. And on top of all of that, they have Stan Druckenmiller yesterday saying there's no way this is going to be a V-shaped recovery. Yeah, it's it's. It's the right thing. I think everybody realizes that there's no way the economy, uh, the stock market should be trading here based on what the economy is going to look like over the next couple of months. They're looking well over, you know, over the valley, as they say. Uh, but, uh, you know, you know this is just a, a, another in a list of, of several pe- people uh, over the last couple of weeks. You had Paul Singer talking about it. We've had Warren Buffett saying, well, you know, with record levels of cash, not really buying anything here. Jeff Gonlock, uh, you, uh, and, and you just go down the list. And Sam Zell was another one. Exactly. Uh, on top of that. And when you get the smart people, I mean, the, 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 I was to say, when you look at politics, the old, the old saying used to be follow the money. Well, in the markets, you want to follow the smart money. And the smart money right now seems to be avoiding the stock market, uh, if not uh, selling it, to, to be perfectly honest with you. So it is a concern. It was interesting. And the president this morning kind of rephrased it, not so much as the smart money, but as the rich guys. Just take a look at the, this tweet a couple, from a couple of hours ago. He said, when the so-called rich guys speak negatively about the market, remember that some are betting big against it and make a lot of money if it goes down and then question if that uh, should really be legal. So you're in. I want to bring you in on this idea of not so much are people just talking down the market, but do these big names, the smart money, the rich guys, so to speak, do you think they have insight that the rest of us don't? Um, I, I don't know if they do. <clears throat> and I'm always suspicious when uh, hedge fund guys are coming out saying they're short or long because chances are they're, they're positioned for, for their words to spread exactly through these kinds of uh, media. So you would agree uh, with so the president always, on that? With it, you know, um, I mean, again, I, we, you don't know what anyone's particular position yeah, is, but that you're I, saying there's more, you know, if there's somebody with money at stake, you know, obviously they can move the market. I mean, I don't know a single person, literally a single person who is bullish on the markets. It's certainly not at these levels. And yet the market is up 30% from the lows and is only down 15% from the highs. Uh, Clearly, the pain trade is higher. And I think when the Fed removed the left tail, essentially, um, about six weeks ago, um, the market was able to step back from the abyss and start pricing in not the 30% drop in 2020 earnings, but uh, the recovery that comes afterwards. And it's interesting, if you look at the market, its drawdown from the highs, it's 15%. The 2022 
EPS numbers are down about 15% from the highs. And so the market actually, you know, if you believe in the shape of that recovery, which I think those numbers are too high, but uh, it's not completely illogical why okay. the market has, has come back from the abyss. It really just comes down to the shape and the speed of the recovery. And is it too fast? Does it create a second wave? Does it turn into a W? I think that's where the conversation should be. Yeah. But 2,500 to 2,800 on the S&P um, prices in kind of a swoosh-like recovery. So it's not completely at, at crazy levels, in my, in my opinion. Matt, Urian's absolutely right. I mean, it's very rare to find people who are bullish on the market right now. But one place you do find them is retail investors, frankly. If you look at what Robinhood says about its accounts, you know, people who are buying the airlines, a lot of their retail investors are buying airlines, for instance. You know, there's a lot of retail money that's going into the stock market, not necessarily out of it. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me, Matt, that it seems like a lot of the public is more confident on stocks and maybe even in the, on the economy than the pros. Well, I hate to say it, but that's usually a negative sign for the market. Uh, and, you know, the, the, we saw that certainly in, in the late 1990s where they were even way more involved than they are today, uh, buying all those tech stocks. Uh, and, uh, but, the, you know, as, as I was saying, is, is the pros tend to uh, uh, take the money at, at, at inflection points. They seem to be doing, usually do the right things, uh, where the, the general investing public, the individual investors, tend to do the wrong things at, at the extreme. So when you see some of these really smart guys, you know, they may be talking their old book, but how many people don't talk their own book. I mean, why would you come out and say, I love Apple Computer if, you hate, uh, if you're shorted? <laughs> you know, so I guess talking your own book is not, is not the worst thing in the world. It, it actually kind of makes sense. And when these guys who are really smart and very successful investors uh, are, are bearish and the public who tends to be the kind of the lambs who are led to slaughter are buying, it, it's usually not a good time to be aggressive on the buy side. Urine, I'll, I'll come back to you for one kind of final remark here, but there are two names in particular I think have surprised a lot of people in their bearishness, and that's Warren Buffett and Sam Zell. Um, you know, again, because these are people who tend either in Warren Buffett's case to be structurally long, uh, you know, risk assets in the U.S. economy, or in Sam Zell's case, to really enjoy coming into distressed assets and not be backing away from them. So what does that tell you, if anything, about the landscape right now? Well, it, it tells, I mean, what Warren Buffett basically said, maybe not in, in his exact words, is that uh, because the Fed removed the left hill, he didn't have any really juicy bargains to buy because the Fed kind of backstopped the market. Hmm. So you can see that as a problem, um, but you can also see that as a good thing because the fact that the Fed did not allow those bargain basement you know, kind of prices uh, to come in and caused the bankruptcies that people like Warren Buffett or Zamsell can come in and swoop up, um, that is what the Fed was supposed to do, and it did it successfully. So um, I'm actually pretty pleased by the fact that they didn't have anything to buy because it means that the Fed did kind of the right amount in the right time frame. No, I think that's really well said. Uh, interesting. Interesting way to look at it. Thank you both. Appreciate it, guys, talking today about the markets, the Fed and the economy. Yuri and Timmer and Matt Maley. We have some breaking news in the bond market right now. Today it was the 30-year bonds up for auction. Let's see if the string of record low rates continues. Rick? Well, there's not as many historic compliments here as there were with the last couple of auctions. First of all, it's 22 billion 30-year bonds. The 22 billion part is definitely a record. The yield at the Dutch auction, 1.342, which is not the lowest all-time yield at an auction. As a matter of fact, if you look over the last two auctions, in October we were at 1.3, or excuse me, in March we were at 1.32. 
In April, the last auction before this, we were at 1.325. So this is the third lowest yield ever. And the auction, I gave it a C minus, a Charlie minus in terms of demand at 1 o'clock Eastern. First of all, it didn't price very well. The one issue market was trading around 133, priced at 1.342. Higher yield, lower price. You know, we want a higher price. And if you look at all the metrics, they were all about average. Indirects was a little bit stronger. And even the 2.30 bid to cover, which is darn close to the 10 auction average, it was still the weakest since November of 19 because we had so many higher ones over the last five, six, seven months that have slipped recently. So a C-minus for the last of $96 billion in total coupon supply, an all-time record for this package in a May refunding. Kelly, back to you. All right, still C-minus, not as great demand as we saw certainly for the 10-year yesterday. Rick, thanks very much. Rick Santelli. Coming up, Dr. Fauci cautioning schools against prematurely returning students to campus in the fall. But at least one, which happens to be my alma mater, wants to push ahead. The president of Washington and Lee joins us next. Plus, airline stocks are tumbling again today at fresh multi-year lows. The Jets ETF is down another 4%. We'll tell you the downbeat warning behind this slide. And his job is to connect companies with manufacturers worldwide. And he says production moved out of China because of tariffs is returning back. He'll tell us why ahead we're back at two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines. Sue? Thank you, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what we know at this hour. A top expert at the World Health Organization says the world has, quote, a long, long way to go, end quote, to get the coronavirus pandemic under control. Dr. Mike Ryan warns risks remain high even as many countries begin to reopen. Johns Hopkins has launched a free online course to train contract tracers. Estimates say that the U.S. will need at least 100,000 tracers. New York will require all of its contact tracers to take that course. And Washington, D.C. is extending its lockdown until June 8th. Mayor Muriel Browser says that the city needs to improve testing and slow its infection rate before those restrictions can be eased. A lot more news conferences today. We'll keep monitoring all of them. And for more coronavirus coverage, you can always go to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Sue. Thank you. Sue Herrera. As colleges and universities look to reopen this fall, Dr. Anthony Fauci is warning them not to act prematurely. The idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the reentry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. California State University, meanwhile, now says classes for its 480,000 students will take place mostly online this fall. My next guest is still hoping and planning to have in-person classes in the fall. For more on the path forward for colleges, I'm joined by Will Dudley. He is president of my alma mater, Washington and Lee University. President Dudley, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to see you again, Kelly. Thanks so, for having me. And I don't want to get you in any trouble here. You know, you say you're planning to do this in the fall, but subject to what the health authorities and others say, um, what are the, the checkboxes that can tell you? And, and just so everybody's aware, this is a very small campus. 
you know, about 400 students a class, a town of 6,000, very rural part of Virginia. We're not talking about a dense urban environment. Um, What are the signals to you that this either can definitely work or might not? Yeah, I would say, you know, we we haven't made a decision, but we're planning. And we our, our goal is to have students on campus safely in the fall. And we are doing everything in our power to increase the likelihood of that outcome. But uh, we will certainly be compliant with all uh, government directives and all the public health guidance that's that's prevailing at the time. So, um, you know, we, we will continue to pay close attention to everything that we hear from from the CDC and other and other public health authorities and make sure we're compliant with that. Uh, but, you know, we have two priorities. One is educational quality. And as, as you just said, you know, we specialize in small classes. The average class size here is less than 15. Uh, 80% of our classes have fewer than, than 20 students. Uh, students choose Washington and Lee because they get personal attention from faculty members who, who know them and care about them uh, because they have opportunities for leadership in uh, a whole host of, of extracurricular programs. 30% of our students are, are varsity athletes, as, as you were. You know, you were lacrosse captain and a, a magna cum laude student. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I know that your, your lacrosse experience, those four years, those were not incidental to your education. They were fundamental to your education and the person you became and the success that you've, that you've had. So having students on campus safely is the best outcome yeah. for them. Um, it's, it's also continuity of employment is, is our second uh, priority. We are the largest employer in Rockbridge County. It's, it's a large and not affluent area. Uh, the jobs on our campus benefit uh, directly the families of, of our employees, but the multiplier effect uh, is critical for every business and every family yeah. in this region. We haven't laid anybody off. We, we do not want to lay anybody off. And so having students on our campus safely uh, is is best for the whole community. And I know there's already been a revenue hit. You know, like you guys have told, uh, you know, revenues in the current year are lower by six and a half million. There's been a hiring freeze already and various other steps. And this is with a, a huge endowment, you know, that uh, we've talked to other schools about as well who are in that privileged position, but say the endowment is also earmarked for a lot of other purposes. Uh, they can't just uh, necessarily tap it at will. And a lot of people lean on that for student scholarships, uh, which affects, of course, the kinds of students who are able to come uh, and who decide to choose WNL in the fall. You know, I, I guess my question is this. What, what would it look like? You know, I'm thinking about the dining halls. I'm thinking about where students live. Would you expand into hotels? Would the campus calendar be changed? Because it's one thing to keep students in that confined area. It's another thing to have them going back and forth and then interacting with their families, you know, using planes and trains, the, the broader public and so forth. So how different might the college experience be? Yeah, those, that's a great question. And uh, I've appointed a task force that's been hard at work for the last month and will deliver me a, a comprehensive report and, and recommendations in, in early June. And it's thinking through uh, every dimension of campus life in the way that you just mentioned. Uh, we're, we're looking at our calendar. Uh, we're thinking about whether we might come back a few weeks early, which would, would let us get the whole semester in before Thanksgiving. So students don't need to uh, leave for break and come back. They would just come here in August and and stay straight through until the semester is done. We're looking at how do we uh, spread students out safely in our classrooms. Again, that's easier here because our average class size is 15. So, uh, mm-hmm. but we need to think about our class hour schedule. We need to think about our dining hall protocols. Uh, we need to think about um, is it possible to conduct athletic practices safely. 
Um, what can we do with, with music and theater performance? So every, every dimension of campus life is being scrutinized to make sure that um, we can be compliant with the prevailing social distancing expectations in the fall. One, one quick final question. I'm, I'm just curious what uh, student reaction and demand has been like so far. Did you have to increase the pool of accepted students? What was yield like as of May 1? Are a lot of people, you think, waiting uh, for a final decision here before choosing where they go? Yeah, um, demand for what we do is fantastic, and, and I'm not at all surprised. So we, we have a fully enrolled class. It's got the best academic quality, and it's the most diverse of any in the history of the university. Um, you know, students and parents, 100% of them are, are saying how much they want to be here. Uh, we've only had one student even inquire about a gap year. Uh, we're offering a quality residential education with financial aid that meets 100% of demonstrated need without loans. And students want that and parents want that. And we want them to be here uh, safely. So that's, that's what we're trying to do. Well, there's so much more I could say, but uh, we'll, we'll save that uh, for perhaps uh, the next time I get to visit in person. And, and thank you again, President Dudley, for joining me today. We look forward to having you in person for a reunion, Kelly. Come yeah. on back. Hopefully we'll be able to do that uh, sooner than later. President okay. Will Dudley of Washington and Lee University. And as other schools are weighing their plans for the fall, the shift to online learning since the COVID-19 outbreak is having a huge impact on education publishers. McGraw-Hill, which we often think of as a textbook publisher, just reported a strong quarter fueled by a surge in demand for its digital products. Here to look at the path forward for education is Simon Allen, the CEO of McGraw-Hill. Uh, Mr. Allen, welcome to you. What do these digital products Thank primarily you. consist of? Well, thank you, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've got uh, a huge catalog of digital products. All of our K-12 uh, textbooks, we used to call them our higher education textbooks, all of them have been moved online into our core platforms, McGraw-Hill Connect and McGraw-Hill Connect Ed for the school group, and also McGraw-Hill Alex. And as you said quite rightly, a lot of people remember McGraw-Hill fondly for, for us being around for over 100 years as primarily a textbook publisher. Now we see ourselves very much as a learning science company utilizing that content that we've developed over, over a century and now really integrating that into our learning uh, science platforms to enable a full and proper courseware solution for students all, all online. So I'm curious, uh, you know, as we look at places where the economy might be holding up relatively better, is your company overall doing well or are you still hit by uh, what's going on with the pandemic? And how are you investing for the future? You know, what is McGraw-Hill going to look like in five years? How accelerated has that been by virtual learning? That's a great question. Uh, we continually invest hundreds of millions of dollars a year in our digital platform development. Um, you'll, the, the beauty of digital platform delivery is that it works globally. We have a very robust business in the U.S. with our higher education and our K-12 companies. We also work very effectively across the globe because the needs of educators really are the same. And what we've seen, Kelly, in the last month or two has been extraordinary as we push literally hundreds of thousands of students into a purely online environment. We help thousands of instructors and institutions morph and evolve their courses into purely online delivery. And we do that in a way that helps the student understand and develop their program and their learning through all of our assessment material that is really targeted at the individual student. So as sad as this pandemic is, and it is indeed tragic around the world, 
from our business point of view, we're actually very excited about the opportunity because it really pushes and accelerates uh, the, the chance for quality online education. And that's key for us. Yeah. Simon Allen, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you about this. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Kevin. Mr. Allen is the CEO of McGraw-Hill. Now to some uh, news that we've just gotten in the last few minutes. Uber is implementing some new precautions for both drivers and customers amid coronavirus. Deirdre Bosa is here with the details from the virtual event they're hosting. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Uber CEO Darwar Khosrow Shahi and his team just finishing a press call outlining those new safety measures as they try to figure out what ride sharing looks like in a socially distant world. Have a listen to him. Uber has allocated $50 million to purchase supplies for drivers to use or make available in their cars. This includes millions of masks and face coverings, hand, san hand sanitizer, and disinfectants. But it's more than just supplies. Keeping everyone safe means that everyone must take proper precautions. Kelly, starting this Monday, May 18th, drivers and delivery partners are going to be required to wear face masks and face covers in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, most large markets in Europe and several other countries worldwide. They have a system where they can actually verify at the start of the ride and throughout the ride. Now, of course, this comes as drivers have been asking for more protections and their status continues to be challenged. Uber treats them as independent contractors. But California's attorney general was on CNBC this morning saying that they should. The law requires them to be treated as employees with all the protections and benefits that go along with this. The covid crisis uh, underlining the importance of this law, this debate that is currently going on. Uh, this is a step towards giving them more protections, but still very far from making them full employees. Kelly. Yep. A lot uh, going on for Uber right now. Deirdre, thanks very much. Coming up, you may be working from home, but it doesn't mean your boss isn't watching you. We'll explain that ahead. Plus, battered airline stocks are taking it on the chin again today, down four to eight percent in the case of United there. Uh, new multi-year lows. We're going to tell you what's behind today's declines. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Check out the airline stocks. Another ugly day. They're hitting fresh multi-year lows as the road to recovery for the industry just keeps getting longer. Phil LeBeau is here with more. Phil? 
Hey, Kelly, when you look at these stocks, and we're going to run through some of the individual ones in a little bit, but they are hitting multi-year lows in some cases. The ARCA Airline Index, it is on pace for its worst year ever. So here's what's behind this sell-off. You've got lackluster Q3 demand. At least that's the expectation at this point. International Air Transport Association, basically industry trade group, said, look, you're not going to have a full recovery the 2019 levels until 2023, maybe 2024. And that has everybody watching the liquidity of the airlines. Some specific names that are in focus today, American Airlines. It has hit an all-time low. Again, you've got to go back, you know, with some of these stocks before they even were starting to trade publicly. And in Americans' case, that's 2013. United, second worst S&P 500 stock year to date. And then finally, we've got Southwest, and it is at its lowest level since May of 2014. Bottom line is this, Kelly. A lot of people are looking at the airlines and they're saying, are these guys dead in the water at least for the next quarter, maybe quarter and a half? We really aren't seeing any indication that that demand is going to be coming back as many were hoping in the third quarter. You know, Phil, one, one of the things that I keep thinking about is the remarks the other day, I believe from the Boeing CEO, about whether these airlines would all uh, stay in business. And, you know, at some right. point, I mean, I understand a lot of carnage, frankly, has to happen for the stocks before we get to that point. But if there's a consolidation play, does that ever start to support the stocks at some point? Do people have a sense of who would be the targets versus who would be the acquirers and all that sort of thing? Well, when you get into consolidation with the airlines, it's not just a matter of does it make sense financially for one airline to take out another. You get into the whole question of you're really down to four airlines in the United States occupying 80% of the people who are traveling in a normal year. Right now is sort of a weird time. but that, So you're looking at that and you're saying, who would the Department of Justice and DOT sit there and say, yeah, this makes sense for... United to take out American or Delta to try to take out American or United or somebody else. Any combination that you throw out there, people would immediately say, whoa, 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 that's too much consolidation. So that's a key factor to keep in right, mind. Right, but if you, if you lose one because they go out of business, it has, you're at the same result, Yeah, but you? Kelly, they won't. They, but but let's, let's keep in mind, going out of business in the minds of the general public is they're gone for good. Let's take a United. They're saying if you said United goes out of business, people say, well, they're never going to be around again. That wouldn't happen. They would go into a structured bankruptcy. That's far more likely. These planes would not just disappear. Hmm. They would restructure the debt in some fashion. So that's the key thing to keep in mind when you look at the airlines. All right. Phil, as always, very helpful and informative. We appreciate it. Phil Abode explaining some of that action today. Let's take a look at the Dow, which is dropping about 500 points right now, uh, continuing its sell-off that really began in earnest yesterday afternoon. American Express, ExxonMobil, and Walgreens among the stocks logging the biggest declines in the Dow there. Still ahead, the trade war made many companies move production out of China. The pandemic is having them reevaluate that decision. Why some are moving back is ahead. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a check on your markets. Uh, the Dow, as we mentioned, down about 500 points. That's a 2% decline. The S&P had down about the same amount. The Nasdaq, too, interestingly enough, which had yesterday been within 6% of its all-time highs, uh, lost some steam then, continues today to shed that down about 2%. The Russell 2000 small caps are down nearly 4%. And we have companies reevaluating their decision to move supply chains. Uh, they moved them out of China during the trade war, but now with the coronavirus pandemic slowing down things in India and Vietnam, some businesses are moving back into China. Joining me with more is Nathan Resnick. He is the CEO of Sourceify, which matches companies with factories around the world. Nathan, uh, welcome. And I I found this quite surprising because China's economy had been uh, so hard hit for the last couple of months, but also because there are 
the relationship between the U.S. and China just seems to get worse with every passing month. Definitely. You know, everyone in the supply chain has been playing a really crazy dance right now in terms of the past two years with all the trade wars between America and China. And then in February, of course, with China being in complete lockdown with the COVID-19 outbreak. Now what we're seeing in China is their supply chain is back online, but there's been a trickle-down effect across Southeast Asia into Vietnam and India, where right now, you know, those two countries are very slow. I was talking to a colleague in Ho Chi Minh last night, and she said it's starting to go back to normal. But, you know, for the past uh, month, it's really been locked down. Yeah. So that being the case, why what's going on in Vietnam and India that places and, and again, Mexico is a big beneficiary of people starting to move out of China. Is it because they want to now leave those those newer countries or, or what's going on here? You know, I think it's two sided. Number one is is everyone in Asia. They have to understand how to contain COVID-19. That's really, you know, first and foremost, the most important factor here. And I think, too, on the back end, a lot of these brands that are importing from Asia and in particular from China, they're trying to understand what is the future consumer sentiment really, you know, feel like when products are made in China. Are people going to be against manufacturing in China and buying products from China because of this outbreak? I mean, there was definitely trickle down effects from consumers to really understand where their products are being made. And there's been a whole push for transparency in the supply chain for the past five years. Right. So now, uh, I mean, the thing is, these these supply chains, I imagine you can't just move them on a dime. It's a huge problem for companies to try to go outside of China. Are they just finding it's too difficult? It's just easier with everything going on from coronavirus to, you know, disputes between, uh, you know, leadership of both countries that it's still just easier uh, to keep their supply base in China. You know, the fact of the matter is China is, you know, the manufacturing hub of the world. You know, and if you look at from a raw material resource standpoint, a lot of those raw materials, even when the products are you know, produced in Mexico or South America, a lot of those raw materials are still coming from China. And so you have to really evaluate and understand the whole supply chain to see the whole trickle down effect in terms of, you know, which way the supply chain's heading. I think a lot of these brands right now, they've reverted some production back to China because of the, you know, impact of COVID-19 in India and Vietnam. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, the past two years, they just transitioned a lot of production outside of China and now they're bringing it, some of it back. It's going to be really interesting to see what the future of production looks like for these large Fortune 1000s. Yeah. So if, uh, just finally, which industries, which kinds of companies in particular are you following here? The ones that might be kind of uh, going back into China and, and perhaps staying there longer than we would have thought after everything that happened in the last few years with the tariffs and trade disputes. Definitely. I would say, you know, a lot of fashion items, a lot of accessories, um, some industrial, some automotive I mean, and electronics as well, you know, especially with the tariffs the past two years, a lot of electronic manufacturing tried to move out of China. You know, right now, China's back online and at full steam. So that has gone back into China. All right. And uh, I guess those are the maybe a good thing, you know, I mean, you could say for consumers, it certainly negates some of the price increases they might have seen otherwise, but obviously a lot of geopolitical problems as well. Nathan, thanks. So we appreciate you joining us with this new information. Nathan Resnick is the CEO of Sourceify. Meantime, as more states reopen their economies, Georgia is one of the first to have everything from restaurants to malls back open to the public. Let's get to Courtney Reagan, who has a check on what the shopping traffic down there is actually like. Courtney? Hi there, Kelly. So data from mobile phones that's been aggregated by FASO shows that as more time passes, shoppers are at least starting to go back to those reopened Georgia malls. So this data shows that since announcing the partial reopening on April 24th, mall traffic in 27 malls in the state did more than double week over week. It's up 56 percent, but that's still 86 percent less traffic 
than at this time last year. Separately, I spoke to American Eagle Chief Commercial Officer Andrew McLean, who had some interesting to say things to say about the 200 plus stores that Eats reopened. He says, quote, shoppers are doing less looking and more purchasing. They know what they want. So the retailer is, quote, converting at a very high rate. During the closures, its online business was strong, and McLean says that it does still continue that same strength. Back over you, Cal. I wonder, too, I mean, we're talking about, you know, even in New Jersey, they're going to allow, uh, now allow non-essential stores to start doing a pickup and that kind of thing. We talked to yeah. uh, Jen Niffen yesterday about kind of this drive-in, drive-up experience that may be coming to more locations. So, you know, there's, there's on the one hand, hey, the shop, go back to the shopping mall and this is, you know, you have it to yourself. But on the other hand, this whole idea that, that going to the mall in the future may be a very, very different kind of experience. Yeah, like drive-through shopping, right? Adobe had some data that showed buy online pickup and store was up something like 200% in April from March. So we may be starting to recapture at least some of that new service model. So the stores that have been building this out for years could be in a sweeter spot if they're really able to fulfill that without a lot of delay and frustration. But we got to see how well this works and how it's adopted. Yeah, absolutely. Courtney, thanks. We appreciate it. Courtney Reagan with the latest on the trends there. Fed Chair Powell reiterating his views on negative interest rates earlier today, saying it's not something the Fed is considering right now. Whether it could be something they consider in the future and what that means for the economy is still ahead. And the names cashing in on the wellness trend as people prioritize health during this ongoing pandemic. The bullish calls of the day are next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get to some of the calls today. They're bullish this time, and I think you'll see the trend. First up is WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, initiated by Jefferies with a buy rating and a $32 price target, about $8 above where we are now. They're saying that COVID-19 has unlocked the durable trend of wellness, and WW's digital platform offers a price-friendly price, uh, friendly price point, she said, and easy accessibility, which could boost the company's growth. The shares on the back of that call today are trading up about 4.5%. Next, sticking with the wellness trend, JMP is now the most bullish on the street on Peloton, bumping its price target to 59 and reiterating its market outperform. JMP says subscriptions are growing faster than expected and will continue to, thanks to what it calls Peloton's three Cs, high-quality content, growing community, and convenience. Peloton shares are actually down almost 4% today to just under 45. And finally, JD.com upgraded by Mizuho to a buy from neutral. And they're hiking the price target uh, by $21 to $58 a share. They're saying JD will benefit from opportunities in online pharmacy as government reforms move customers away from hospitals and medical centers. They also see online shopping for essential items as a lasting trend that should benefit JD. Those shares are hitting a two-year high today, currently up 1.5% to just under 48. And there you go. The wellness trend still ahead from big tech like Twitter and Facebook to nationwide insurance. A lot of companies have people working from home and are now looking for ways to track worker productivity, how your company may be watching you work. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Apple is breaking with other big tech companies like Google and Facebook, saying workers returning to its global offices will be doing so in phases instead of working through home through the end of the year. Phase one is already underway with workers who can't work from home or face challenges in doing so. They're back in the office already with phase two starting in July. Apple has offices throughout major U.S. cities, including New York, L.A. and Austin. And they they say return to work timelines remain fluid and they're following local and uh, state stay at home orders. 
But for those companies who do remain working from home, many of them are now searching for ways to track employee productivity while offices are closed. Eric Chemi joins me now with a look at the path forward for both employers and workers. Eric? Kelly, that's right. Part of the reason why companies of all sizes can be confident in letting employees work from home is because the bosses are tracking their workers. We spoke with Prodiscore. It's a technology firm that monitors employee work habits. Their business is up 600 percent in the last few months as companies want to keep a watchful eye on their workers. Here's what their CEO said. We use AI tools to massage that into a real-time score that you see, as does your boss and the CEO and the VP of sales and the chief revenue officer. Everyone is seeing the productivity. Prodiscore gives corporate managers a score to quantify employee productivity. It's based on email activity, phone calls, messages, calendar appointments, and time spent working on various documents. Vonage is a customer of Prodiscore, and it says the product has led to a 30% increase in productivity. Here's one of the Vonage executives. It just gives you a more intelligent conversation. It's uh, less of a micromanaged field because you're simply just doing the behaviors you typically would do anyway. So while some workers may love skipping the commute and staying in the comfort of their own home, just know that their managers are paying very close attention. Kelly? That's why we're in the office. No, I'm kidding. What I really wonder, Eric, is do the employees know that they're being monitored? Because would that information alone boost productivity by 30 percent? And and shouldn't they know? I mean, if they don't know, maybe they should be asking. So in Vonage's case, the employees do know, and it's part of the metrics that managers have with their employees. Prodiscore CEO said, we want the companies to tell their employees. They're not required to. They don't have to. But they encourage the employees to find out so that they can work together. And it's just another metric, ideally, that the manager and the employee can have to say, hey, were you productive? Did you hit your metrics? Did you hit your targets? We look to see if you actually were doing your work or not. Right. It'd be unpleasant to find out then that they knew exactly what you were up to. Eric, thanks very much. Eric Chemi. Still ahead, President Trump arguing for negative interest rates while Fed Chair Jay Powell remains steadfastly against them. Who's right? The great rate debate is next. Coming up on Power Lunch, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester will weigh in on that in an exclusive interview. Stick around for that. The Exchange will be right back. Fed Chair Jay Powell rejecting the idea of negative interest rates one day after President Trump said he supports it. Powell explained why during a webcast with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. The committee's view on uh, on negative rates really has has not changed. Uh, this is not something that we're that we're looking at. We chose not to implement negative rates uh, during the global financial crisis and the recovery, and instead we relied, as you pointed out, on forward guidance and asset purchases asset purchases when we were, when we were at the, near the zero bound. And we've said that we intend to continue relying on those tools which uh, are tried and, and uh, they are now a part of our toolkit. Joining me with their reaction now are Diane Swank, the chief economist at Grant Thornton, and David Zervos, the chief market strategist at Jefferies. It's great to have you both here. And Dave, you always crack me up. So you heard Jay Powell's remarks today and took that as, hey, Negative rates actually could happen. What was it about his denials that has you thinking, and and even going into the question today, has you thinking this could really be coming? Well, look, there's been a lot of talk about it. You you know, you guys have had Ken Rogoff on a few times. He penned a a piece about how 
Uh, you know, rates should be at negative 3% in the front end. Uh, we've seen Coach Lakota with some, some blog pieces as well, arguing the same thing. Um, this debate has been there for a while, and the actors are all the same. And this is exactly what you would have effect, expected Powell to say. He said nothing different, meaning he said the, the party line, which is we're not doing this. We, we didn't like it before. We don't really like it now. But what he did say, which I thought was very interesting, is he used the words for now mm. in one of his responses. He said, there are some people who are fans of it, but for now, the committee is not looking at this. And for now is a very, uh, very interesting set of words uh, coming from a Federal Reserve official. It's not something that signals it's off the table completely. And I think, you know, Rick, uh, Rick if I'm not mistaken, it was Rick Santelli earlier today in a somewhat heated debate with Steve Leisman was uh, was arguing, yes, the door was not shut today. It was not clamped tight, I think is what he said. And, and, and I agree with him. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people expected it to be more clamped tight and, and it wasn't. So this is a move away from kind of uh, what I would have thought would have been an outright denial of like, look, this is not happening ever, ever. Right. Using the word for now was very tricky for me. And very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And Diane, the other thing here is that this is a Fed that we've heard them pivot before, you know, even when they've declared across the board, you know, like back in the end of 2018, you know, uh, that they were going to continue uh, to keep raising the Fed funds rate when they, in fact, turned around and cut rates. It seemed preposterous. The president was calling for it, everyone. And then it happened. You know, So we're used to about faces already. Do you think negative rates is something that should be on the table? And, and what would that achieve? I don't think it should be on the table. And I actually think Paul was pretty clear about how unanimous the current Federal Reserve is. Every one of the participants said this is not what they think is the best thing, particularly for this um, unique crisis. And I think that's really important. We saw Patrick Carker talk earlier last week about how the negative rates can't reopen businesses that are already shuttered. This is not the right tool for this particular crisis. And the threshold to use negative rates is very, very high. The Fed went through a year-long process, of which I've been to many of the meetings of. And the Fed and Ken Rogoff was at those meetings. And I heard his argument. And I also heard the counter to it. And the Fed really did evolve. In the fall of 2018, I was at the meeting where Chairman Powell said, hey, we'd consider negative rates. That's something we're looking at. And so it's evolved to the fact that they looked at it. They looked at the efficacy. They looked at the um, mixed uh, effects it's had abroad and the unintended consequences and said, this is certainly not on the top of our list. And particularly for this crisis, this Fed has been unanimous that this is not the best outcome for for triggering and right. curing what ails us with the coronavirus. So and I do think the Fed has evolved on this and they thought about it. And it's interesting, Dave, because you said the Fed has evolved, but it can keep evolving, even joking about a chair Rogoff or a chair coach or Lakota who's been open to it in the future. I mean, we and we've seen this before when they're kind of jockeying for influence. I, we might hear more about negative rates, especially now that it has the president's support. What is the mar you know, is this just because the market wants it and it's learned that, hey, if it wants something bad enough, it can get it? Or does it re do you really think this would serve the financial system and the economy? Well, look, I, I, there, there's two debates here. What, what should they do and what will they do? And you know me, Kelly, I'm much more about what I think they're going to do than what they should do. My, my opinion on what they should do is, you know, just like everybody else's, it's not the most, it's not the important thing. The important thing is thinking about how this committee will evolve. And I, I do think with the president pushing it so hard, there's an evolution I mean, if, if, if he is the next president, and that's a big if, uh, who will be the next chair? And thinking about that over the long run is an important thing for the equity markets and long-dated 
fixed income investors who may have to hedge a Fed that pivots if Powell is not there uh, in a year and a half, and also who the next governors are. Uh, Marvin Goodfriend, the late great Marvin Goodfriend, was a big advocate of deep negative interest rates. Yeah. He, he ran into he unfortunately ran into some problems uh, with confirmation as well. But but again, I, I think. We have to think about how the makeup of the committee evolves over a long horizon, not just over the next month, two months, or three months. And I do think you even had, uh, you had Alan Blinder on, uh, the vice chair when I used to be back at the mm-hmm. Fed, way, way back uh, in the early 90s, another lifetime ago. And he actually said, I kind of like negative rates, which is sort of funny that he said, I don't think it's happened, but I kind of like it. The, the academics all kind of settle on liking this. Okay. And, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them. And it's practitioners that tend to be very nervous about them because it eats into their spreads. It's Diane, a livelihood issue. Absolutely. And, and I think those are legitimate concerns. Dan, I'll give you the last one. We've, we've just got a couple seconds left, but I see your face <laughs> blanching. And please elaborate on what you think is more likely here uh, with the Fed. You know, you never say never, but um, negative rates would be the absolute last thing they do right now. And even a year from now, the composition of the Fed isn't going to change that much a year from now. And that's what the market is um, sort of looking at six months from now. That's what the market's looking at over the longer haul. You know, if the Fed were to bow to the will of the president, as this this Fed did not, um, I think they had the credibility to do what they did because they did not. And if they were to have a chair that would do that, I think you'd have a heck of a rebellion among the presidents. This is not um, a single-led Fed. It is a committee that yeah. goes for it, and the unanimous nature with which they rejected it really matters. All right, you got it all in, and uh, we appreciate you both. We hope to continue the, the great rate debate, uh, so to speak. Diane Swank and David Zervos, thank you both today. That does it for the Exchange. You've been listening to the Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses. No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.